Good morning. Uh, I remember uh, the moment my daughter was born. She's uh, five years, starts school in a couple weeks, so this has kind of been bouncing around my head because I've blinked and somehow um, she has a school box and a lunch box and a backpack and life's about to begin. But I remember that day so vividly um, because right after she was born, we had uh, two days in the hospital and I've never ever enjoyed being in a hospital more uh, than those two days. And I remember the nurse coming in and saying, Causey uh, family, uh, we're going to have you checked out today by noon, and then you can leave. And I said, hold up. What do you mean leave? Like, well, you can, you can go home. I was like, are you coming with me? Like, um, no. Um, but by noon, we'll have your paperwork. We'll see you soon. And I was sitting there thinking, like, I kill plants. Like, this cannot be a good idea. That they, like, there's no instruction manual. No one came and asked me questions to see if I was even qualified to take home a human life. Like, what is happening? And they're like, all right, you're done. You can leave now. We're going to turn your room over for the next person coming in. And I'm like, I don't want to go. And, you know, then they come out and they're like, we'll help you get the car seat in. And so, you know, we get the car seat in. And I'm like, are you sure that's stable enough? I mean, it looks a little wobbly. And they're like, well, you just latch it in. And so we get in the car. And they wave by, and I'm just sitting there. Like, I, I don't want to leave. And my wife's like, we got to go. Like, we can't stay here. So I put the car in drive and pull very slowly, like 10 miles per hour through the parking lot. And what was typically about a 15-minute ride home took close to 45 minutes to an hour. Because, I mean, the, the four-way stops where you want to make sure you really want to make sure. And then I, that car... They don't see that stop sign. There's a chance if my engine went out while I'm going through the intersection, I would just stop. This would be horrible. And I mean, it was the most stressful, like visually, vigilantly aware circumstance I'd ever been in because the entire time I was kind of this wave of reality was hitting me that I am now responsible for a human life. A human life that is incapable, incapable of taking care of herself. And it's all on us. And I kill plants. They just need sun and water. And it was a moment that in a lot of ways I think marked me because it was a moment where I had to grow up really quick because this idea of being a parent became reality. And chances are is that all of us in this room have been defined and marked by a moment. That some type of moment has struck you. Maybe it was the day you stood across the kind of the altar and you made you made vows or maybe it was the death of a loved one it sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad but we all have these moments that define us that shape us and cause us to become who we are in our journey and as we kind of navigate this month of dealing with this series around Moses in this extraordinary life I want us to take you to the moment in Moses's life that marked him that defined him. You see, while we're separated by thousands of years from this man and his life, the reality is human is human. Doesn't matter what space, place, season, or time frame. Humanity is humanity. We all have this similarity where moments have the power to mark us, define us, and shape us, and mold us. And Moses' moment is worth looking into. It's worth studying the snapshot that we see in the chapter of Exodus chapter 3. Because in that snapshot, 
I think that you and I can find inspiration for today. That what is a picture of his moment can actually become inspiration or even a path for our moments in life. Because without this moment, Moses would have never become Moses. He would have been a name that would have disappeared and maybe some obscure doctrinal student in some ancient language would have read his name in an Egyptian police report, but no one would have ever heard of him. And yet today, he is by far one of the most easily recognizable names in all of religious history. And it's all about this moment. And it's a moment that I want us to press into, and I hope that... If you're here for the first time, let me just give you a slight disclaimer. This will be different than I normally do. I'm, typically, I like to give you handles and say, here's, here's what the go and do tomorrow. Here's what you can do on the way home. Here's what you can do in the parking lot. But today isn't so much about instruction. I think Moses' story and snapshot is about inspiration for us today. And so uh, as we press in, I want you to open up your hearts and mind. And as we step into his story... Begin to imagine, what if this was your story too? To kind of set the backdrop, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, and it's the really easy book to find if you've never even held a Bible, because it's the second one in the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus. Exodus is written by Moses himself, um, and a bulk of the book of Exodus, it gets its name because it's primarily about the exit or the exodus the, of the nation of Israel out of Egypt from slavery, and this is really the birth story of a nation that still exists today, the nation of Israel. And this is a powerful story, and as we've walked through so far this month and as we continue, we haven't made it very far because there's so much about Moses' life at the beginning that's critical for understanding how to live an extraordinary life. So in Exodus chapter 3, it's preceded by Exodus 1 and 2, and Exodus 1, we were introduced to the character of Moses, a man who is Jewish, who's born in a time where being Jewish and being a boy that's born is illegal. It's a death sentence. The Pharaoh at the time, who has enslaved the Jewish people, sees the birth of Jewish boys as a threat, and so he issues a decree that says any Jewish boy born must die. Moses' mom, in a bold and courageous act that marks Moses' life, takes Moses and hides him in a basket and with his sister in tow, sends it down the river where he's discovered by Egyptian, an Egyptian princess. She's moved. God's supernaturally doing some things in the course of his life. And she's moved and she begins to raise him as her own son. And he grows up as an Egyptian prince. This Jewish boy grows up with all of the wisdom and all of the power and all the authority and the benefits and the perks of being Egyptian royalty in a day and an age and a time where people believe royalty is equated to deity. And so people respond to his request. He's got servants. But when he becomes an adult, something inside of him is being stirred one day when he goes out and he sees his people, the Jewish people that he knows he came from, being beaten and enslaved. And in that act and in that moment, anger and justice and rage spill out and he takes the life of someone. And then this young man, this adult man who was Egyptian royalty the day before is now a fugitive on the run. And he flees into the desert. He leaves a palace 
And now he's in the desert. And what ends up happening is he rescues and steps in in this altercation between a group of shepherdesses, women who are shepherds, and a group of thugs. And he protects the women that have come to the well that day. And in the process of protecting them, he gets an invitation to dinner. And that dinner turns into a relationship. And he ends up meeting his wife. And chapter 3 has set the stage of a man who used to be a somebody, who now for decades has been a nobody, a fugitive, on the run. And where we find him is no longer in a palace, but we find him bearing the responsibility of taking care of goats and sheep, because now he's become a shepherd. He's in the family business. And this is what he does, day in and day out. Nobody serves him. He serves the sheep and the goats. And then Exodus 3. It says in verse 1 of chapter um, 3, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. Right? So, got that. It's not even his own flock. It's his father-in-law's flock. I mean, how many would want to be managing your father-in-law's flock? I mean, that's not something us, we put on our bucket list. And he's doing that, and he's led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. What I love about this is that uh, if you were to remember that the book of Exodus is written in Hebrew. Moses writes this, and the Hebrew for this sentence is incredibly boring. I want you, when you read this sentence, the way to kind of jump into it for today would be that moment in Ferris Bueller's day off where he's like, Bueller, Bueller, that voice. Like Moses writes in Hebrew the equivalent of this voice. He wants you to understand, for decades, this is what I've been doing. For decades, I have been wandering around in the middle of nowhere. Had there been cell service, this would have been a spot that says no signal. Right? Had you had a GPS in this day, it would have been like, we have no idea how to get you where you want to go. Because there is no roads out of this place. You're in the middle of nowhere. Specifically, he's in a stretch of a valley that's about a mile wide, and it's surrounded by desert mountains on all sides. This is where he is that day. And he writes that sentence because he wants to set the backdrop for what's about to happen. He says, and there, in this middle of nowhere place, in this middle of nowhere space, there, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. You see, when you're a shepherd, it doesn't take much to entertain you. And so he's walking through the wilderness, and he sees something strange. A bush is on fire. But he wants you to know that that's not the strange part. Because in those days, it would be possible to wander across a forest or a bush on fire. Lightning could have struck it in a storm. And there is no fire department in charge of remote bushes to come and put it out. There is no smoke alarm systems. So bushes and vegetation just burn. But what he notices is as he's walking by, in the peripheral of his eye is a bush that's burning, but that's not burning up. He's like, now, I don't see this every day. And so it piques his curiosity, and he starts to wander over to that bush. And as he gets close, in verse 4, it says, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from with the bush, within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, 
Here am I. Now, let's just be real. Have you had a bush talk to you recently? Probably not. And if you did, you should probably tell a loved one. Who should tell someone in the medical field? Bushes do not talk. That's not normal. Moses, in some ways, responds like many of us would respond if we encountered a bush that talked. I mean, if I hear my name, there's a part of me from my elementary days that's just triggered. And I'd be like, present? Here? I mean, like, when a bush says your name, I mean, you just check it. I'm, I'm present. It's me, right? There's not another Moses out here in the middle of nowhere. This is strange. I mean, maybe he's like, maybe I shouldn't have ate that mushroom. Something told me it could have been bad, right? I mean, like he's in the middle of nowhere and a bush is talking to him. But he's stuck in this place, in this season of life. And here's where I, I think we have to be honest. Like this is not normal. This is supernatural. And, and in some ways, that's, that's for some of us, that may be a struggle, like, you're good with the Moses killing a man, running into the wilderness, kind of wandering on his own. The bush talking crosses the line. And that's fair. I think that's a very honest. I remember reading this 16 years and two weeks ago. First time I ever read that story, 16 years and two weeks ago. Because it, it grabbed a hold of me when I read it. But let's just, for the sake of argument, let's say that there is a God. And if there is a God, then what this will help inform you of is the type of God he is. And just for us to walk through, because there is a bit of unfolding about who he is in this moment that I think is worth listening to, because if there isn't a God, then we're wasting our time. But if there is, isn't it worth getting to know who he is? Or at least exploring that, or at least like Moses, taking a turn and walking a couple steps to see a little bit more. And this is what Moses does. He goes over and he says, Moses, Moses. We could run through the rest of this story. And quite honestly, this story has informed and has shaped and molded and marked me. But it's also marked this church. This is a powerful story. And so I don't want to just speed through it. I want to slow down at certain moments. And the first moment I want to slow down is this one. Because if you've ever read this story before, if you're familiar with this story, if you've ever watched Ten Commandments because you were stuck and your remote control batteries died and it was on television one night, you, you probably remember this moment, right? You, you recall what happens, but it's profound. It's incredible. But you have to be Moses to catch how ground, how truly profound it is. It's why he gives us the Ferris Bueller professor voice in verse 1 to set up this reality that God speaks to Moses and it's personal. He says the most personal thing he could have ever said to Moses. He says his name. Right? We all like our name, don't we? It's, it's ours. You can be in a crowd of thousands of people and somebody says your name, your first thought is not, oh, there's someone else with that name. You're like, oh, someone calling me? Right, we do that, right? Because our name is so personal to us, we assume even in crowds of hundreds of people, they must be talking to me. And when we meet people who have the same name as us, we automatically, it's been psychologically proven, we like them. We attribute better care. I bet they're smart. I bet they're good looking. 
I bet they're hardworking. I mean, we, we project what we think about ourselves onto them. It's, it's the human condition. And he speaks to Moses with his name. And think about it. If you've murdered a man and for decades you've been on the run, you live with this constant fear in the back of your mind that someone is going to say your name and you don't know who they are. And it means they found you. He's living here so no one will know who he is. He's on the run. And a name, his name out of nowhere is not an inviting, encouraging thing. It means they found him. They've caught him. It's over. And God grabs hold and says, Moses, Moses. And that simple statement, 16 years ago, grabbed me. Wow. God, you spoke his name. Like, you know my name? He knows your name? But remember the context. It says that Moses, that God saw Moses walk over to the bush. It's not that just God, that when he says his name, there's so much inside of that. It's like, Moses, I have seen your decades of struggle. I have seen your decades of wandering in the wilderness. I see your pain. I see your past. Moses. That's what's inside of that name. Is a God who knows him, who made him, who formed him, who shaped him, who came up with a plan for his life before he even started that plan unfolding. And that's why when he says Moses, there is this powerful echo in heaven because God is saying, I see you. And for many of us, we've never pondered the fact that a God who says to Moses, 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 would also say that to us too. Chris, Chris. And that he would say and see over your life. That he sees you in your current struggle. That he has seen you in your moments of victory and strength. That he has heard you in your quiet moments of desperation that no one else knows, that he has seen you in those moments of depression and despair, and that he is a God who's willing to meet you there. That's incredible. He's not a God who waits for Moses to have the tuxedo on, who's worked out his legal filings and has made the appeal and made it all the way to the Supreme Court and got his case thrown out. Like he's not looking for the Moses who's showing up, who's fixed all the problems. He speaks to Moses where he is in his brokenness. There is no beauty. There's only ashes in this man's life. And yet, that is where he meets him. We believe out of this moment that you matter to him. That I matter to him. That if you are human, it does not matter where you've come from, where you're going, what your skin color is. It does not matter that he sees you, he formed you, he made you, he molded you. You were his idea. He thought you up. And when I say that this story has defined and shaped the storyline of this church, I'm not joking. I mean, literally the lobby of this space is formed out of this story. Now, most of you probably don't think about this when you walk in, but when you walk into our lobby space, if you've noticed, the colors have been muted. It looks like an art gallery. It was designed to look like an art gallery. Because we believe you are the masterpieces of God. 
And what we wanted to pop was the people when they stood in that lobby. Because we think you are the masterpieces. You were his greatest and good creation. He formed you. He called you good. And that there is a power that many of us have never even realized that God would look over our lives and that with love he would say our names. And that he would step into our world in the midst of our brokenness. It's the reason that even as we're in the hope initiative this year of, of raising money, not just for this physical space through December, but we said we're not just about trying to build a space. We believe in creating hope here, there, and everywhere. And so the money that you are giving to physically build this space is also some of it is going to Guatemala where there's a ministry where girls who've been rescued out of horrible, horrible physical trafficking who are pregnant as teenagers can have a house where they can be loved and served and taught life skills where they can have this practical, powerful truth that God knows them by name and that he has formed them and that he steps into our brokenness and makes beauty, that there is a space created for them. And that's what a portion of the funds we're raising from this building goes to. Or another portion is going to Syrian refugee children who, for most of them, never remember their nation or their life without war, without this racist, civil shearing of their society in the backdrop. And these kids are living in tents and huts scattered all throughout Europe and Asia. And this ministry steps in and helps to educate children so that they don't have to be defined by where they've come from. Because we think God cares about people and he knows them by name. And we see that. Moses. Moses. But Moses doesn't know what he's getting into, and so the story kind of continues. He's not just a God who's personal. It says that when Moses says present, that God says, okay, do not come any closer. Verse 5. Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Moses doesn't understand what he's just stepped into. He doesn't have a clue. He just knows that the bush just talked to him, and he said, present, here, check. And God said, okay, I just want to help you understand what you just stepped into is different. My presence transforms an atmosphere. This ground just got elevated. This is now holy ground. He's like, Moses, I am God. I am powerful. I am not some older, wiser projection of you. I am separate and distinct from you. There is power you cannot fathom with your mind. And the only way I can help you is you need to go ahead and take off your shoes because you just stepped into something different. And Moses physically, just with that act, starts to kind of have the weight and reality of who he is. But God doesn't stop. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, you just stepped into this world not too long ago. But long before you were born, there was distant rumors of what I would do that you've heard about in your distant forefathers. Well, I was their God too. I spoke to them. I am the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. I mean, the weight of that is incredible. He's like, I have seen, I have lived from the past into the present into the future. I am Moses. I am. And there's just this kind of bigness to God. And most of us don't live around things that are more powerful. Everything about our life, right, is completely positioned to be manageable and controllable. 
None of us have things in our world that are terrifying, dangerous, and powerful. We, in fact, are so hungry for something that is bigger than us that we will spend money to have the sense of that. Yesterday, we were at Kimball Farms. My daughter and I, we, we go up on a zip line. We paid money for someone to strap us to a chair, to send us flying up into the air at 100 feet and to shoot us back down. We paid for that experience that any sane individual would run away from. And why? Because we like as humans to be in the presence and to have a moment, whether it's in a zip line or the Grand Canyon, where we are put in perspective and our smallness is made small. And the bigness is made big. That there's something, isn't that surprising about us? There's something comforting about us realizing that we're not a big deal. That there's something that brings strength when we realize our weakness. And I remember in college, I, I was a biochem professor, I mean, a major, and one of my classes I took my senior year was animal psychology, which is a, a very strange class, I understand. But part of the class, one of the things that we would learn is how to train animals. Um, so bomb dogs, um, Guard dogs, I mean, that, that was part of the, the lab experiment, was learning how to train those animals. And so we would have, the big project for the year was to actually study an animal at a zoo and learn to recognize the distinct behaviors that the animal had. And so you would learn how to read an animal's behaviors so that you could begin to then build and train it. And so I was um, given um, some bears as my training animal. So I spent a lot of time at the zoo, got to know the staff. And um, one day I was there and there were, the person who was over the bears was also over the lions and tigers. Oh my, right? And they said to me, hey, um, would you like to see the lions? We've got them back. We've taken them out of the thing and we've got them in their cage. And I said, uh, yeah, of course. So I go back into their like little lair in the back and there is one of the female lionesses and she's just laying there on the floor in her cage. And he's Huge, huge steel bars. And um, he's like, do you want to play, uh, play tug of war with the lion? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. And so the, the trainer brings out a fire hose, one of those huge, massive fire hoses. And he um, slides open the little gap, and he throws it into her pen. And he says, you grab the other end. Start pulling. The lioness, because she likes this, go, stays laying down on the floor and places her paw on it, and her claws come out. And it's like, shh. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a man. <laughs> I grab that thing, and with all of my weight, I lean back, and it does not budge. I pull harder, and she blinks at me. Everything I have in me straining. And it doesn't budge. And that day, the, a very reverent respect for lions hit me. Because I was like, oh my goodness, this creature is not breaking a sweat. And I've got veins popping out of my neck. This is power that I don't have. And, and God wanted Moses to understand that because there's a perspective that comes with that realization. There is a quiet comfort and strength that comes that there is someone greater and larger than your life, that there is someone even greater, as he's saying over Mo Moses, there is someone greater than generations of struggle. 
of generations of slavery. There is someone greater and bigger and more, more imaginably stronger than anything that you and I could find ourselves in, even if that thing has been marked, has marked our families for generations. That that God is greater, bigger, grander, stronger, more infinite, and is yet simultaneously intimate. Because he says, Moses, Moses. And he tells him that because it's very helpful to understand what he gives him at the end. In verse 7, he says, do not come any closer, right? He's like, at verse 5, don't come any closer. I'm powerful. And then in verse 7, he says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out into that land that's good and spacious, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Parasites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cries of the Israelites have reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So Moses catches this glimpse of the power, the personal, this infinite and intimate God. And then he gets instructions. Hey Moses, you remember decades ago you tried to start something, that revolution, and that failed? I want you to go back and do it now. I want you to step into that now. And Moses needed to hear that God was powerful because God knew he was about to send him into something. He was about to say something that would wreck Moses at the core. But here's what was incredible is that God is saying to Moses in this conversation that, Moses, I recognize that your last few decades have been marked by panic and anxiety, but I'm here to give you peace. He's like, Moses, I know that what you have is a past, but I'm here to exchange your past for purpose. You've been a nobody wandering around in the middle of nowhere, and I am here to exchange that so that you can be a liberator, a rescuer back home. I mean, he exchanges Moses' past for purpose. Moses didn't have prison cells, but he was living in prison. And God was turning the key and opening the door and saying, Moses, you're free. Your past does not have to define you. Moses, your worst decision does not have to define who you are and your life. That does not have to be the totality of the Moses story. Moses has a physical staff that he's carried around for decades, and it is a sign and a reminder of the disgrace of a life that he used to have. It's his shepherd's staff, a borrowed shepherd's staff, because he can't even have his own flock. He's got his father-in-law's. And yet God says, hey, that staff, as you go through the story, that staff that's such a reminder of this season, it's about to become your source of strength because that staff is going to allow you to walk into Pharaoh's throne room, knock on the door and say, Pharaoh, I'm here. God's got a message for you through me. And he said to me to tell you to let his people go free. And just in case you're not sure, he's given me this here stick that can perform all kinds of neat tricks. Bam! Right? That Moses's, what had marked Moses' season of struggle is now a reflection of his strength. And the power that he has. That in part of my storyline, 
When I was in college, I was diagnosed with OCD, and to say the words, it literally almost killed me is an understatement. It almost completely destroyed my life. It was a season of dark depression, of loneliness, of me running and rushing and pursuing all these other things to try to fill me up and to make me feel better and to fix what was broken on the inside. And it almost took my life multiple times. And then 16 years ago and two weeks ago, I became a Christian. And over the last 16 years and two weeks, what I have seen is that today as a leader, my OCD is my greatest strength in leadership. That what he has taught me and what I have seen, this is not a storyline, this is my storyline too. That he is still able to take our past and exchange it for purpose. That he is still able to take our pain and exchange it for purpose. That he is willing to take what we thought was there for our defeat and what was there to be a reminder of our shame and actually use it as a source of strength. That maybe the family life that you came out of does not have to define the type of family life that you can build. That your sense of feeling like you're just punching a clock and going through the routine, but there's something inside of you that cries out for purpose, that cries out for significance, does not have to stay in this holding pattern forever. He's still a God that exchanges it for purpose, for peace, for joy, for love, for hope. He's still in that business today. It's what he did for Moses. It's what he's done for me, and it's what he can do for you too. No matter where you are, no matter what is going on, no matter where you've come from, he's still in the business of exchanging our past for purpose and peace and love and joy and hope. And it's why even within the context of this church, we've created environments. It's the reason we serve in our community. It's the reason we do good in our community and not just our neighborhood, but in the nations, like I said earlier, because we still believe God does that today. We still believe we get to march to the drumbeat of hope and love and joy and peace that we get to sing a chorus of redemption and rescue and transformation that we have that song and that, that rhythm of hope that the world desperately cries out for. That we see that at the inside, at the core of humanity's brokenness is our heart and that we serve and follow the one who's still in the process of exchanging ashes for beauty and death for life. That that's who we are as a church. It's defined us. We've created groups around that. And this fall, we will have a group where you can explore faith and dig deeper into the doubts and the struggles you have. That we will be starting a group where you can grow in your faith and learn how to take what happens on Sunday morning for an hour or two and, and to allow it to begin to flow into every waking hour that you have. The, of creating groups that deal with those pressure points and pinch points in life and and even groups like what we call life groups that help connect the dots between the message on Sunday and life on Monday. But simultaneously allow you to connect with others and start to form a community of people who are moving together. Moving towards a life of better decisions and fewer regrets. And even we are a group of people who on Sunday mornings have created environments throughout this physical space because of people willing to serve. And that for you, maybe some of you today, the next step is you just jumping in, starting to serve in one of the areas, or maybe for you, it's to, to just jump in and kind of like get your toe a little wet with a, a serving date that we're going to have um, in a few weeks that's in the app and starting point that uh, we're going to have a, a work day in this space to con continue to kind of work on it and prepare for our fall kickoff 
September 10th. And so we've created spaces, environments where we can physically embody and live out this manifestation of hope. Because we believe that what Moses demonstrates is an extraordinary life may start with you, but it doesn't end with you. Moses finds freedom, but what he does is he eventually frees a people. An extraordinary life may start with you, but God's intention is it never ends with you. That he does something incredible through you and in you and around you where love and joy and peace and hope that flows out of you into other people who desperately long and need it. Which is why in verse 11, in verse 12, right, Moses says to God, um, hey, I got this question, disclaimer, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God answers him and says, I will be with you and this will be your sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. He says, here's your sign, Moses. It's going to happen. And you, you is, it changes in that sentence. It goes from you singular to you plural. He's like, Moses, I'm starting with you, but I'm not ending with you. You will come back here as a people and you will stand in this spot. And I am not wasting anything. All those years you spent being a shepherd, I'm now going to set you up and you're going to wander and you're going to lead these people through the wilderness paths that you've walked for decades. Because God doesn't come into our lives and leave a setback, a setback. He uses it as a setup for what he wants to do through us. This is what happens here. And it's, God says, no, here's the thing you need to understand, Moses. What's the key to the extraordinary life? I'm going to be with you. I'm the secret weapon that you don't really have grasped yet, is that all that's happening here is what I want to do inside of you and do through you. Brian Stevenson, who is an incredible civil rights attorney, graduated from Harvard Law School, uh, has written a powerfully moving book called Just Mercy, um, is doing some incredible things in the civil rights movement. And uh, he tells a story in his TED Talk and in his book and that, that really kind of shaped me. It, it just grabbed a hold of my heart. He talks about his grandmother and something that she did with him and how it changed him. And I stole his idea and I started doing it. And what she did and what I now do is um, I'll, every morning when I see Ella I, and I get ready to go to work, I give her a hug. And then I squeeze a little bit tighter. And I say, Ella, do you feel daddy's hug? Yeah, daddy, it's tight. I say, and then I'll let go. Like, do you still feel me hugging you? Daddy's going to be gone today. I'm going to work because I know she's about to go to school, right? And so I'm thinking about this. I'm like, daddy's going to work. But do you still feel me hugging you? And she'll kind of take a step back, smile. No, and then she takes off. And I run her down, and I hug her even harder, and I let her go. Do you still feel me hugging you? No, and then she takes off and runs the other way, and I grab her. And finally, I squeeze her so tight. She's like, Daddy, I feel you hugging me. And we've been doing it for a little bit. And, and it's, it's getting fun because now I'm like, the reason I squeeze you that hard is I want you to never forget how much I love you, how I'm always going to be here for you. How even when I'm not around, I am for you. And so now she, she's, she's getting it. Daddy, I, I, I still feel your hug, Daddy. This morning as she was leaving, come here, and I, she's like, Daddy, I still feel your hug. I still feel your hug, Daddy. And I think what God was doing through Moses that day was he was wanting to demonstrate his love in a way that would shape Israel forever and ever, that they, when they were brought out of Egypt, when they were brought out of slavery, that they would feel forever his love and his declaration and his presence and his power. 
And that as the church, we believe that God's death on a cross and resurrection is that manifestation, that demonstration of that, that physical act of love where you and I, no matter what season we're in, no matter what struggle we're in, no matter what victory, right, no matter what quiet desperation, that God's demonstration over us is love and hope and presence. And that for some of us today, as we wrap up and as the band comes out and leads us in a song, it's just to be our step is just to be reminded that he's still with and for you. And that for some of you, it may be that you're not sure where you or what you believe, but that on the Exploring Faith, I've put a video there for you just to be able to, to watch and engage with, to, to wrestle with this idea of a God. But for you to realize that if there is a God that we believe there is, that what he says over you is love. That what he's done is to make a way. And that all of us, no matter who we are, what we are, where we've come from, that we all, all have an opportunity for hope and life and peace and joy. And that for us, as we respond today, that there may be some of us, that as the band is going to sing a song, um, Thy Will Be Done, that for some of us, I recognize you are in a season where you feel like Moses before the bush. That you see in your life stage and season a struggle with a child. That you see in this life stage and, or season uh, a struggle with your job and maybe a, a longing for significance or to be a part of something significant. And that you, or you're watching your relationship fall apart or that you feel like this is dissolving all in front of my eyes and I have nothing to do or I am bound with addictions and substances that I have no power to break over that this would just be a reminder that there is a God who is still able to stand above you and still able to do incredible things in and through you but for some of us it may just be where we say today God I trust you and I need you and that for some of us during this song it may be to think about a loved one or it may be someone where God desires for you to be that burning bush in their life to be that source of hope and strength, to be that present on Monday. Because let's, let's, let's be real. I've been watching the news and I've been heartbroken like you are too. The world needs a little bit more hope. The world needs a little bit of us walking into our spaces and places and saying, I believe that love wins. I believe that there is something greater, that there is someone grander than our circumstances. There is someone greater and grander than authority and power on earth, that there is authority and power in heaven. And for us, some of us, it may be just to own up to the mantle and to mission to realize that an extraordinary life does start with me, but it does not have to end with me. And for us to walk into our spaces and places of life and work and to be that for them who need him, who need his hope, who need his love. So I want to invite you to stand for us to finish up how we'll <coughs> wrap up today. And for some of us in this, I would just encourage you, you have the app. If there's some thoughts that came to mind to use it. Uh, we also have in that app for those who call Encounter Church Home. Uh, an ability to give because our generosity, your generosity is why we're able to do the things we're able to do. And so we carve out this space for those who call Encounter Church home to practice that generosity as well. But we believe that in the last five minutes that we have together in this room, that God can do something in us and through us, that God can begin to move us from ordinary to extraordinary in our lives too. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for this team. Thank you for this group. Thank you for this hope and this word, this reminder that you desire to do exceedingly beyond 
what we could ask or imagine. I pray that in our struggles, in our hearts, in our lives, in our seasons of victory, strength, that you would remind us that you're with us. That you would inspire us to what people we could become as a church. And for those who feel imprisoned and trapped, that you would whisper into our hearts that you desire to bring us freedom, peace, and joy. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen.